You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Christian Humanist Profiles podcast. My name is Edward Song. I teach in the philosophy department at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, and co-host a politics podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network called The City of Man. I'm joined today by my colleague here, Samir Yadov, who is a theologian in the Religious Studies Department here at Westmont. But more important, Samir and I are joined today by Miroslav Wolf. Thanks, Ed. Miroslav Wolf is the Henry B. Wright Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School and the founding director of Yale's Center for Faith and Culture. He was educated in his native Croatia before doing his doctoral work with Jürgen Moltmann in Germany. He has long worked at the intersection of systematic theology and Christian ethics, and he's written or edited 15 books, including the award-winning Exclusion and Embrace, as well as over 70 scholarly articles. More recently, he has been the author of a, a several books dealing with Christian identity in the public sphere, and uh, three of these in particular that I have in mind are a 2011 book called A Public Faith, which deals with the roles that particularly Christians play uh, in political engagement. And then in 2016, he, he published a book called Flourishing with Yale University Press, uh, which deals with the relationship between religion and the modern processes of globalization. In his most recent book, a Pub- uh, Public Faith in Action, Miroslav Uh, helps us to think through uh, how it is that we are to uh, have conversations, particularly Christians, are to have conversations about what it looks like practically to debate and converse over uh, matters of public policy. So as an opening question, Miroslav, your work has seemed to undergo a kind of shift over the course of your career, Uh, whereas your earlier work, it seems to me, centered on the interior of Christian confession, dealing with matters such as forgiveness of sins, uh, our forgiveness of of others, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, the relationship between the Holy Spirit and a theology of work. Uh, You've, in your more recent work, you seem to have made the the shift towards thinking more about Christian engagement in interreligious dialogue, Christian engagement in in politics, and uh, uh, if that's an accurate characterization of the of the sort of change in direction of your career, then what accounts for the shift? Well, I, I think uh, for about the first ten years of my uh, of my theological work, uh, I did most of my work on Christian faith and economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I my dissertation was on Karl Marx and uh, kind of Christian evaluation of that theological evaluation of uh, of his uh, account of uh, work. And I worked on broad issues, set of issues on Christian faith and economics. Then I shifted to uh, questions of reconciliation and ecclesiology, mm-hmm. uh, which led me then uh, uh, to interfaith dialogue. And uh, next stage was, in a sense, more public side, more explicitly public side of Christian uh, of Christian faith. I never thought that uh, public and private are two clearly uh, distinguishable spheres. I believe that, they, well, we can distinguish them, but they bleed into, uh, into mm-hmm. one another. Right. And uh, I, this became very clear to me, especially uh, as I was working on the book uh, on flourishing, how uh, in some ways 
the global structures, uh, economic and political, uh, technological uh, structures uh, of the world in which we inhabit are closely tied to the deepest desires of our of our hearts. Uh, one informs and shapes the other, and they can be kept apart. And so I like to keep my work, in a sense, in both of these uh, kind of more private, more uh, intimate, uh, more matters of heart, as well as matter of our um, public uh, um, uh, public life. Mm. Would you say that? Um that your uh, the way that you go about that work, I can see the sense of unity that you that you're articulating across the body of work that you've done. But there's a sense in which do you think that in terms of audiences or um, your mode of addressing these topics, merely merely sort of addressing and and speaking to Christian um, in the Christian academic theological context to educated Christian laity. Um, versus thinking more broadly as a sort of have taking more of the role of the public intellectual um, in the in the what you're doing at the Center for Faith and Culture in your engagements in context for say addressing um, political leaders um, in different parts of the world and um, audiences that are not even explicitly just Christian audiences and mm-hmm. in the interreligious context. Um, is that something that uh, that you've become more recently passionate about in the work you've done, or is that something that has uh, you also identify as underlying uh, some of your earlier interests as well? I think it was there in my interest. Uh, maybe it wasn't there in, in terms of opportunities. Uh, I think a shift, a significant shift occurred for me uh, from teaching in uh, more uh, church uh, uh, settings versus teaching in uh, now at Yale, which is a kind of pluralistic or secular uh, university, it opened up a possibilities to speak to a, a broader set of uh, right. set of a broader audience. Though I must say, I I don't think that in terms of my own self-understanding of my work, uh, much has shifted. Uh, I do believe that public theology and church theology ought not to be uh, also separated, that they belong, uh, they belong together. Um, and um, it's just a, probably a matter of emphasis rather than, uh, than, yeah. uh, than a shift. And in a more, most recent work that I'm doing and the kind of series of books that are planned now, uh, it's going to be very much uh, be about the shape of human uh, being or the being human in the light of self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So, and it will attend to very private uh, things from uh, our um, uh, our senses uh, to kind of quasi-public, something like homes, which we dwell mm-hmm. to, kind of grand issues. As well, so I, I don't want to make those. Uh, I don't want to be uh, pushed into one or the other camp because I find that those camps are not useful. So, in a, in the 2011 book, A Public Faith, uh, you identify two different kinds of uh, what you des- describe as a malfunction of Christianity in public life: um, malfunctions of assent, namely, which you, in which you include uh, the idea of reductivism and idolatry. And then two kinds of malfunction uh, in terms of return, uh, which you describe in terms of idleness and coercion. Um, and I'm just curious, to how did you come to identify uh, 
these malfunctions in this with this kind of taxonomy of ascent and return, and um, what was the what was the thinking behind that framework? Well, it seemed to me that um, Christian faith is a revealed hmm. religion, if you call Christian faith a religion, and I know it's disputed, but it's a revealed faith, which is to say somehow. Uh, there is a question of how do you gain access to, how do you receive that which Revelation uh, gives to you, and there is also, and it's a prophetic faith. It's a faith that is intended to shape our lives, to shape uh, uh, the the world, uh, because God is the God of the entire uh, world and the purpose of human life uh, is uh, into a significant degree to align ourselves uh, with the character and the purposes uh, purposes of God. Now we can misidentify what character and purposes of God uh, are, and that's a kind of malfunction. Then that's a faith that uh, hasn't quite gotten to the point of connecting with the true source of revelation, and therefore is in the dark about the identity and character of God. But there is also uh, kind of a faith that hasn't succeeded well. In, uh, uh, in touching the world, um, uh, either in a sense that it kind of imposes itself uh, untrue to some dimension of the character of God, or in it abdicates certain responsibilities, in which case it becomes uh, idle. Uh, so roughly uh, the structure is given by the character of faith as revealed religion uh, meant to shape the world. That's really helpful. So, what you do talk uh, a great deal in the uh, you know you go on to elaborate how uh, the the malfunctions of idleness and coercion um, function and um, how we might how we might overcome those difficulties. But you don't elaborate as much in at least in that book on idolatry or reductivism as the the malfunctions of ascent. Um, how would you elaborate the way that you see those those particular malfunctions working themselves out for Christians today? Yeah, I, I think there 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 are major ways. And and by the way, the the two um, two types of um, malfunctions uh, are can be very closely closely related. Sure. Yeah. Um, and um, idolatry is kind of a prevalent uh, malfunction in the in flourishing uh, book I emphasize more also idolatry side uh, side of things where we make uh, worldly things uh, where we make uh, living for bread alone uh, mm-hmm. as the primary purpose of our lives so that uh, making making more sophisticated uh, and more abundant bread becomes the purpose of our lives, and that, in many ways, ends up being a great sin uh, of modernity, as I mm-hmm. think it has been a great sin throughout the ages. Either association of faith, or e- either making making wealth uh, mm-hmm. our god, uh, kind of mammon, or making the leviathan, making uh, the kind of political power. Our, our God, and then making Christian faith a subservient to one or the other of these uh, these deities. That's a typical uh, malfunction of uh, of ascent. But mm-hmm. at the same time, because you have a misidentified God, 
you will also have a, a malfunction of descent. In a sense, you will, the way in which the faith works itself out in the world will end up being, I think, pernicious in many ways. Mm-hmm. And it's also a kind of reductivism, isn't it? That is to say, yeah. when you the idea of making... Uh, uh, the idea of bread alone, the the main sort of goal of uh, faith engagement in public life, is a way of reducing or abdicating um, the significance of of religious um, goods as transcendent of those kinds of uh, considerations. Yeah, in some sense, you 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 talk the language, but the language has lost its uh, its its own proper uh, proper uh, proper meaning, right? Um, uh, and, and it's kind of functionalized. I think uh, I think this idea of functionalization of faith. So where where um, uh, to use the language of early Karl Barth, where the Lord is made to serve rather than be Lord. That's right. Uh, and used as a tool to our to our purposes, and that's mm-hmm. clearly both reduction, uh, idolatry, and also wrongful insertion of the self into the world. So flourishing then uh, this is a natural pivot to talking about the uh, the 2015 book flourishing. Uh, it's it's about these challenges and possibilities that exist between religion and globalization, and so it attempts to show why the great world religions uh, sometimes malfunction in these ways that you've just described, and generate all kinds of conflict. But also it's about uh, why all of the great world religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and others, have the you, what you describe as the internal resources to help negotiate the challenges of globalization, um, to help encourage a kind of healthy pluralism, political pluralism, and to sustain a kind of life of flourishing for all of us. So you define flourishing in terms of these three, uh, three elements, living life well, life going well, and experiencing a personal satisfaction with one's life. Um, so how did you arrive at this definition? Why, why these three elements and not other things? Well, I, I, I think one can, one can make a, a plausible argument. Uh, I haven't done so in uh, Flourishing because it wasn't, there wasn't place uh, for this. But one can make a plausible argument that kind of the long... Um, uh, and prevalent traditions of thinking about the good life, mm-hmm. uh, whether in philosophical, religious, uh, or more specifically Christian uh, sense, uh, can be subsumed under these three categories. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got uh, accounts that emphasize life going well. Say Marxism would be uh, okay. uh, such, uh, such work. You have uh, accounts which emphasize life being led well. Stoicism might be probably a good best candidate for it, maybe Kant in some Kant, uh, right. yeah. regards as well, right? Um, you have, especially in recent years, emphasis uh, more on the kind of inner satisfaction of the self mm-hmm. uh, and uh, feeling uh, right. And to me, it seemed, it seemed to me that uh, uh, the, the three traditions that I've just uh, mentioned have something that is of significance mm-hmm. from the Christian standpoint and that they need to be integrated. And indeed, the, argu- the argument would, would be that, uh, that 
I mean, if you if you want the scriptural basis uh, for this, and it takes a certain lens to read the, the text that I'm going to uh, refer to in this way, is uh, Romans 14:17, uh, uh, where Apostle Paul writes about the kingdom of God and uh, and says what kingdom of God isn't about, and what the kingdom of God is about. And he says, well, the kingdom of God isn't food and drink. He means isn't only about food and drink. Presumably, right. he thinks it involves some of uh, some uh, some eating and some drinking, right? But the kingdom of God is about righteousness, about peace, and about joy. And righteousness is really right living, and it can be summed up under command to love, to love God, and to love uh, to love neighbor. Uh, peace is uh, kind of a circumstances, life going well. Uh, it reverts to this broad uh, sense, personal as well as social sense of shalom. And then uh, joy is this affective dimension of, uh, of, of life. Not so much personal satisfaction, and that's where I would push about your characterization of my, yeah. of my position, but, <coughs> but life feeling in some ways uh, right. And joy is such a uh, is just such an emotion. What's interesting, I think, in the way in which I use these three uh, three uh, aspects of uh, flourishing life, and also I think in which biblical texts that I to which I just refer uses the categories of righteousness, peace, and joy, is that they don't exclude each other, so to say, yeah. but each includes the others to a certain mm -hmm. degree. Why while um, preferring uh, uh, one aspect, so righteousness. You can imagine the entirety of the life being organized around around righteousness, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and there are such imaginations, for, for instance, of heaven. Heaven is a world of love. That mm -hmm. means uh, we love, uh, we live in the environment of love, and there are affections associated with, with love. You can say the same thing of peace. Uh, peace is something that's kind of uh, kind of inner, something that we nurture, where we are active agents of it. And peace also has this affective dimension. You can say, interestingly enough, the same thing of joy. When um, Jesus says to, in the parable of good and faithful servant, to the faithful servant, master says, "Enter into the joy of your master." Mm -hmm. He means this. This is the this is the world to come. Seen under the aspect of joy. It's right. an entire circumstance of joy. Uh, it's an agency and activity of joy, and it's it's a kind of feeling and affect uh, of joy, right? Yeah. So basically, there is a kind of perichoretic structure, if you want, to this to these three, but nonetheless, each of them names properly one aspect, significant aspect. Right. They're interpenetrating. Um, they they. That's how I take them to be. What I take them yeah. to be. Yeah. So, um, and they describe though together. So, if you see them as sort of necessary and sufficient conditions for human flourishing, um, they describe something a kind of optimal situation. Um, yeah. Whereas uh, we might say that what we tend to experience is often suboptimal. Um, um, and so, in, in attempting to aim at this at this uh, sort of goal of flourishing in terms of all three elements. Um, uh, it's often the case that we have to settle for less than the best in w at least one of the three categories. I mean, this is what one of the things that, that um, for example, that Kant worried about with their Satilian picture, right? That is that, that we often um, 
uh, have to live life um, in a way that is according to duty, but that doesn't that doesn't um, line up with with life going well for us. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, so uh, in the case in which we have suboptimal circumstances and we have to settle for. Uh, maybe just two of the three, which one would you be most happy to give up? <laughs> uh, uh, right. Uh, uh, and I think, uh, I think we need to distinguish here, here um, uh, uh, kind of the, the, the destination. Uh-huh. Um, the Christian, Christian account of, of, uh, of living is stretched across the journey and the destination. Mm-hmm. All right? Uh, uh, through this world to the world to come. Right. And uh, um, I take it that kind of optimal uh, um, mutual interiority and, uh, and the presence of all three uh, is what the destination is about. And that's why, by the way, Apostle Paul speaks about uh, them as being this is what the kingdom of God I- is about. Mm-hmm. I think when we speak in terms of the trajectory of going, going there, um, I think we live in the world of uh, world of sin. We live the, in the world in which I think we do need to uh, sometimes uh, prioritize where um, our action will not necessarily necessarily be matched by circumstances in which we find ourselves uh, in the world of suffering. And I think it's clear there that uh, our main purpose is alignment of our lives with God's life and character, so that agential. Uh, dimension of the good life uh, has definite uh, has definite priority, yeah, okay. um, and for the sake of but but it is uh, it would be then um, uh, quote unquote settling <laughs> if you right, want exactly. um, or suffering for the sake of uh, integration of uh, of all three, and I think we need to make also discerning judgments. Well, what does it mean actually for life to go well? What does it mean to have uh, agency? Well, is life going? Does life going well mean uh, maximize the, uh, the, 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 the uh, kind of sophistication of the of the wealth uh, and yeah. human benefit of wealth that we are producing? And the response to that would be no. It seems it seems that the way in which we as agents relate to the world that uh, is created or that we create is fundamental to the character of the circumstances themselves. That is to say, the way I perceive circumstances is what circumstances in part are. That's not to say that the only thing I need to do is to see the world differently. It means that even if I've improved the world to uh, so that it's impossible to improve it more, if I don't see it rightly, I'm going to screw it up. Which is the story of the fall, right? Yes, I mean, exactly. Here, these folks are in the paradise, yeah. and yet they don't see the world the way the way they ought to see. They they don't act adequately in the world, and the world falls apart for them. So mm-hmm. I think I think that that this kind of alignment of circumstances and agency and effective attunement with the world mm-hmm. is is fundamental to the circumstantial as well as to agential uh, dimensions of uh, of the yeah. good life. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about some of those circumstantial dimensions. So part of what's going on in flourishing is that it's it's talks about how the great world religions all share certain kinds of internal resources that help us negotiate a lot of the challenges of globalization. 
and to and th- that they can be useful in encouraging real flourishing of the kind that you've been talking about in a in a global in a global world. And um, one of the things that they all share that's important to to them, uh, you know, referencing uh. Augustine's famous lines at the beginning of the Confessions that all of the global religions are fundamentally about finding an answer to human restlessness in transcendence. And and so that bit about transcendence is particularly important. And um, these world religions are not primarily interested in doing what science is doing, say, in terms of explaining and manipulating the world. And I'm just sort of interested in so you're, def- you're defending the importance of world religions and helping us negotiate the stress and strains of globalization. Um, and I'm interested in what you think about the possibilities of purely secular philosophies in, in doing this, right? So there are certainly many avowedly secular humanist thinkers that are worried about the same, the same kinds of issues. One can think of examples like Freud or Marx as promoting distinctively secular philosophies that are geared towards a concern about human flourishing in in different ways. But they obviously aren't transcendental in the way that you think religions are. And so, you know, how necessary is 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 this transcendentalism to um, you know the ability to to negotiate these challenges of of globalization? Is there something intrinsic about these humanist approaches that make them less able to address the problems with which you're concerned? Um, I, I think the, 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 the great world religions um, have a, a particular set of strengths. They have also particular sets, uh, set of weaknesses uh, as well, certainly as they have been uh, articulated in many of their varieties. By the way, I should say uh, I think all uh, what, what, uh, precise claim that I make uh, is not that all um, religions share resources, but I'm uh, saying all religions have been interpreted and can yeah. be can be interpreted and have been interpreted to share to, to have resources for living in peace and contributing something fundamental uh, uh, in in a in a highly globalized uh, uh, world. Because yeah. uh, we, we have a we have a, a kind of misformed, malformed forms of uh, forms of religion that are deserve our criticism. Uh, they're forms also of Christian faith, but also of other faiths, uh, uh, faiths as well. Um, I, I think that um, what I was trying to emphasize in the in the book uh, flourishing um, is that this sense that we don't live for the world alone and that we don't leap off the world uh, alone. Uh, mm-hmm. A sense that uh, we don't live by bread alone, but something transcendent that comes uh, to us, but every word that comes from, uh, fr- from the Lord. That seems to me to be kind of a fundamental insight. Uh, and fundamental insight is no matter is that no matter how much you improve the world in terms of the worldliness of the world, you, in fact, will never satisfy the restlessness of human heart. That was the point of uh, our claim about Augustine. Now, are there forms of transcendence, uh, or are there implicit ways in which certain humanistic uh, accounts uh, of the good life can uh, 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 can capture this dimension, right? Uh, 
uh, that that is so prominent in world uh, world religions. Um, uh, I I could uh, I could uh, I could see why and how some folks would argue that. My colleague here, Anthony Cronman at Yale. Um, has written recently a book, Confessions of Born Again Pagan, where he argues a certain reading of, uh, of Spinoza and Spinozism mm-hmm. that provides forms of transcendence, mm-hmm. right, that uh, uh, serve similar function that uh, transcendent in the great religion uh, religions serve. Uh, I think where the question then becomes for me, uh, both in terms of conversation with humanism, but also in terms of conversation among religions, uh, and that is that not all transcendences are equal. Yeah. Uh, there is a, after I've made my argument, but let's assume that my argument counts, right? Uh, after that argument has been made, what still remains to be, to be argued is, well, uh, what is the proper account of transcendence? Right. Uh, and what is the relationship, proper account of the relationship of transcendence to, uh, to immanence? Right to mundane uh, realities, and those are very sturdy debates that are going on within each of the great traditions, and also among those traditions. Uh, really, very important uh, debates. And much of theological work work is just about these debates. Uh, right? And I, I think we, in no way, do I want to suggest in what I have written, even if you can kind of. Uh, create alliance in certain regards uh, of great uh, world faith, that then the debate among them about the truth of human existence is thereby somehow resolved, that we've all become uh, uh, one, uh, that we all have kind of this one nebulous uh, single religion in varieties of expressions. I don't believe that at all. So it, it seems like uh, one of the things I see parallel to um, what you suggest in flourishing is is something I find as well in in Charles Taylor's um, A Secular Age, which is to say a way of thinking about um, the the term transcendence um, functions in a similar way uh, in in Taylor's account of secularity about this idea of cutting the world off from a um, from a relationship to uh, a non-creaturely domain or something like that. Um, and that separation, and therefore even after the separation, um, after that, that distinction takes place, then you can ask whether it's possible to live one's life entirely within the, the, what he calls the imminent frame or whether one um, could, should live it in relationship to something beyond it and that's what I, the same kind of language I hear you talking about here. And as I read Flourishing, it seems to me that, that um, the critique of globalization as um, a critique about the way in which it tempts religious traditions to be functionalized, as you've described it, right. uh, to be instrumentalized for the, merely for mundane purposes of um, the distribution of goods of social goods, political goods, and so on, is something that I think could be responded to in two different ways. One way is to say, well, what we need is transcendence, but only transcendence in the sense that we need non-instrumental goods, final goods, you know, um, some teleology, what, is it, what are humans for, what are they about? And that's a kind of transcendence of instrumental goods that does not seem to require belief in anything beyond the imminent frame. Whereas... Um, we can also ask about transcendence as to the question of whether there's anything beyond 
the, uh, the imminent frame. That is to say, whether we should locate final goods here or beyond here. Um, and so, for your argument in flourishing, do you do you need to say that we should locate this kind of transcendence that world religions provide um, outside of the imminent frame, or can't you just say? And this is part of pushing back on what Ed is asking, can't you just say that all we need is some account of final goods that are non-instrumental, and maybe we can have secular versions of those? Well, I, I think basically, uh, the, the, as far as I take the argument in, in flourishing, is to simply say not that the world religions uh, are absolutely indispensable, but that they have uh, significant uh, goods uh, that they can contribute in terms of shaping uh, sh- shaping uh, globalization, uh, both in terms of kinds of appeals that they have and practices that they that, that they inculcate and the visions uh, that they have as well. Um, as I mentioned, uh, I, I think there can be secular versions of of the kinds of transcendence uh, that uh, that 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 is necessary. Does this uh, is it plausible? So these are these uh, are these accounts of transcendence plausible? Um, uh, are there are there sufficient in terms of how the grip that they can possibly have on human beings? Those would be the questions that would need to be uh, need to be uh, debated. Uh, I, I think, uh, and uh, it would seem to me that uh, that that you you need more than just a vision. Uh, kind of plausible philosophy um, for for this relationship for for faith to make difference in the world to, yeah. to offer resistance. If that is the question, I think that was that was the original question. Right. Um, you need them. You, you you need communities that embody them. You need communities uh-huh. that stabilize, that that develop them, that keep them keep them supple. Uh, you 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 need uh, in entire forms of life organized around them to provide mm-hmm. a push. And even then, you, you know, I'm sometimes skeptical that uh, kind of the, the power of the market uh, is such that. Uh, uh, efforts of even great religions often look uh, look feeble and are subverted and and actually uh, made subservient to to the goods uh, that that the, the yeah. market uh, pushes on us. So, yeah. um, in so even if it were possible, even if it were possible in theory, they don't sort of have the social resources. The practical to, infrastructure, yeah. in other words, is there for religious tradition. Uh, uh, I think so, and that's why I talk uh, talk about them as the most potent right. yeah. uh-huh. of of the good life. Um, sometimes I, I don't think necessarily that they're more persuasive. I think that some some uh, some secular visions uh, of transcendence are more persuasive to me than some religious ones. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's um, I'm I'm kind of. Uh, I don't want to make adjudications between all, all religions. Ones are somehow. For some significant reason, superior than the others. I'm, right, I'm not sure right. that I want to make that uh, that argument. That's helpful. I mean, I'm a, I'm a committed Christian, so I would say that Christian account uh, is is most plausible. Uh, but I don't have necessarily stakes in saying that all religious accounts, as opposed to right, secular right. accounts, are better. Right. That's that's right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so that that gets at, at some of the, the resources that religious conviction has. Um, but people often think of religion as being fundamentally geared towards encouraging exclusion and intolerance. Religion just can't be a part of the answer with regard to promoting genuinely pluralistic political life at the domestic and international levels precisely because, so the argument goes, it just geared towards exclusion and intolerance. One of the more interesting parts of the book is where you try to suggest that all of the major world religions have the resources to promote religious liberty. Maybe you could just walk us through that argument a little bit. Yeah, I think um, my, my sense is that um, the, the great world religions, they operate with the fundamental distinction, not separation, but distinction between uh, uh, the sphere of politics and the cultural domain of of religion. And for all world religions, they give primacy to the religious sphere to transcendence. They operate with these two world accounts of reality, which we, about which we discussed the phrases from Nietzsche. Uh, but uh, uh, I use it in, uh, in a way that kind of describes this great, uh, great world, world religion. And they give primacy to the transcendent realm over mundane realm. And if they separate religion and, uh, and politics or distinguish religion and, uh, and, and politics, uh, and if you make another move and uh, you say that uh, great religious traditions address human beings qua human beings, uh, not qua members of a particular uh, ethnic, uh, particular political, or any other uh, other grouping. If that's true, which I believe it, uh, believe it is, mm -hmm. and it has to be qualified in different ways, but fundamentally that's that's true. Uh, if that is true, then I believe that uh, resources are already in these basic convictions given for, to affirm freedom of religion. And as a matter mm -hmm. of fact, all great religious traditions do affirm freedom to embrace another faith, right? Mm -hmm. Because in some ways they are addressed every single human being, right? And every single human being ought to be free to be uh, to choose uh, religious truth that this particular tradition uh, represents. Where traditions uh, uh, have tended to uh, agree, but uh, but introduce the tension within themselves, is that a person ought not to be free to abandon the faith which uh, he has uh, embraced. Uh, Christians have for, for century, uh, centuries uh, censured uh, leaving of the Christian faith. It wasn't up to a person to do so. Uh, majority Muslims in the world uh, do so uh, even today. Other traditions have been very hesitant about, uh, about this. I think that's an inner inconsistency of, of religions, and uh, you can explain for in different ways why that inconsistency is, is there. I think it is inconsistency, and therefore I believe that uh, great religious traditions uh, can and do, there are plausible versions of each one of them that do affirm full freedom uh, of, uh, of religion, and in fact, they have stakes in uh, a pluralistic world in affirming the freedom for themselves as well as for others. Yeah. Yes. Can we talk about that inconsistency. You know, the the story that you tell about these resources makes a, makes a lot of sense. But then, in some ways, I mean, that story is very sanguine um, and optimistic and attractive. But. Uh, 
it's it's also striking. I mean, especially in given the state of the world right now, you know, both in the United States and abroad, it's it seems like there is a lot of inconsistent inconsistency between these possible internal resources and like the practice of a lot of religious persons in the world. So, like in in the fourth chapter of Flourishing, you look at how an exclusive religion like Christianity can nevertheless promote political pluralism in the United States as a kind of an object lesson as to how that might happen in other contexts and for other religions. And the analysis turns a lot on how very exclusive Christian groups like the Christian Coalition and Focus on the Family, for example, train their members on the importance of civility and respect in engaging others. But um, but then that training seems pretty deeply out of step with the way in which political Christianity in the United States tends to operate, uh, especially these days. So um, now what explains that, that inconsistency? Why have religions or Christianity in, in particular failed despite the theological resources that we have to, to, to honor that religious liberty? Well, I, I think my argument uh, in, in the book uh, would be that uh, one of the great temptation, temptations of uh, all world religions and temptations falling into which is pernicious uh, in many ways uh, uh, for them, or at least it transforms them in, uh, in, in a significant uh, uh, way that isn't to, 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 uh, the, to their good. Uh, um, let, me, uh, let me make a footnote. Uh, when I speak about world religions, uh, I speak, I'm trying to be faithful to them, but I speak as a Christian theologian. I don't speak, so, so to speak, from nowhere. Sure. Um, and uh, I think that seems to me the only honest way to uh, uh, to do it. Everybody speaks from a particular standpoint. So I, the vantage point is of a Christian theologian uh, as I see religions, uh, their own internal uh, internal struggles. Uh, close footnote. Uh, I think one of the one of the great temptation is to align themselves with a particular political project. That has been that has been a, a, a kind of practice of the Christian faith uh, over the centuries. And if you ask why is it that Christian faith has given up on the freedom original freedom of of religion, is because it has aligned itself so profoundly with a particular political project as a Christian uh, project. Um, why is it that in the United States you still have uh, a kind of push against the uh, religious freedom in position of religion? I, I think it's, it's the legacy of Winter. Uh, listen, the United States was founded as a Taliban state. <laughs> right? yeah. uh, it yeah. was founded where, where the kind of, there's this tight unity between religion and, uh, and, and, and politics. So that uh, punishments for blasphemy, punishments for idolatry, punishments for adultery uh, were no less severe than they were in in worse places uh, in the world today. Some were only on the books and not practiced, but there are also cases in which uh, in which it was it, it was practiced. And so I, I think that in the United States you still have the struggle between the two souls. Uh, of, mm. of America, one is a Roger Williams soul, Williams soul, and the other one is uh, John Winthrop uh, soul. Yeah, and I think that kind of tension, uh, and you can see why that tension uh, tension would be there. Obviously, 
if you have a political vision, you want that vision to be, uh, and you think it's a true one, you want that vision to be shared by, by others. You engage in political process in order to make this possible. Sometimes your goals get away uh, from you, and you're not willing to abide by uh, the political pro uh, process that allows uh, uh, all people a kind of fair way of uh, speaking out in public realm and a chance uh, for their vision of the good life to kind of have a public a public foothold and be realized. And obviously those are conflicts. Uh, often the, the realities are con conflictual. But my basic uh, argument is we compromise on the freedom religion be, uh, of religion because we like to align our faiths with political projects. And so I mm -hmm. distinguish in principle between political religions and politically engaged religions. Right. Political religions are those who think of themselves as articulating moral and cultural unity of the entire nation. Politically engaged religions are those who think that there are moral, moral aspects of their message that need to that have public expression and that need need to be brought to bear uh, upon public uh, life, and they're willing to engage in give and take of the political uh, political process uh, as they're articulating this vision for public um, public uh, consumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, continuing on on that issue of religious freedom, one of the great things about this other book, Public Faith in Action, is that you try to address a number of the most pressing social issues that we need to think about these days, and you kind of sketch out a, a, a set of Christian commitments about how we ought to think about them, uh, the, the kinds of issues that you take to be theologically settled, and then importantly, the kinds of issues that you take to be not theologically settled. Issues of religious liberty are among the issues that you talk about in that book. I, I, I'm interested in in how you think about that vision being applied to some of the most pressing issues of religious conscience these days. Specifically, I think about like the recent cases regarding provision of birth control or the demand that Christian bakers or florists can't refuse service to same-sex weddings. How do you, how do you think about those issues as issues of religious liberty? Uh, I think we need to uh, we need to uh, think carefully about uh, about those uh, th th those questions uh, as well. Um, uh, first, there are much more pressing issues, obviously, of of religious liberty. And when people complain that in this yeah. country we, we have religious liber liberty uh, taken away from us. Uh, you know, they're they're like spoiled brats uh, complaining about yeah. uh, not 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 getting uh, not not getting uh, full level of allowance that their very rich parents were giving them. They 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 can't be driving their Beamers <laughs> because they have to drive uh, a drive near Toyotas or something like that, right? We're in Santa Barbara, so we know exactly what you're talking about, <laughs> right? <laughs> So, so uh, I, I think uh, let's make sure that we understand the, the kind of broad spectrum of, uh, of, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. of what religious uh, liberty is. But you know, I, I think it is, it is it is an important question to ask, uh, uh, and the, without prejudging prejudging the, the the outcome of of the debate, what it is, what what is it that uh, that, that uh, what, what kinds of freedoms uh, in terms of expression of one's faith should a person, um, a photographer, um, have? Um, should uh, pornographic scenes be, uh, be uh, accepted? Should one be in whatever way forced uh, 
uh, because one has a public job to participate in, in, in something something of that sort. Um, uh, uh, and I think that the discussion will have to be on case by case basis rather than uh, in some general uh, general way. And um, you know, Charles Taylor and I think McClure or uh, have written this uh, this little book with, where they go to plurality of those cases and make sure that uh, that that uh, the kind of different competing kind of interests uh, are, are being uh, are being taken uh, taken into account. So I, I do take seriously the idea. You know, I'm, I come from a place where uh, my religious liberty actually was curtailed. There are certain jobs that I right. couldn't yeah, do. sure. Uh, and so forth. So I stand with with people who want to abide by their by their conscience as they live their public public life. That's my basic basic principle. What that means, uh, if somebody says my religious conviction is that I can't serve uh, I can't serve uh, African Americans uh, because uh, because uh, God wants me to separate. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I'll. I'll uh, uh, I'll, I think I'll think you know this is the cover. You've got a wrong interpretation, and yeah. you got to stop uh, with this. I'm not going to take it seriously. So, and I think those judgments will have to be made. Right. Well, um, so final question. Um, so, you, you, uh, when I was at Yale Divinity uh, for my STM, you were my uh, you were my advisor, and I. Um, Remember being in a in a seminar with you in which you expressed some some laments about about the difficulties of writing books um, that were meant to engage uh, a a um, an educated laity to take seriously the theological nuance that's required to think about certain moral issues um, and um, and one of the things that you express in this public faith and action book is the um, the desire exactly for the book to be used, to be taken and used to start conversations in Christian communities, um, to have to have legs, so to speak. Um, so when you think about when you envision with with that book, it's it's use in Christian communities. How do you how do you envision its use? How do you want somebody to take up the kind of way of framing the issues and uh, so on that you that you lay out in that in that. Well, you know, my co-author uh, Ryan McAnally Lintz, and uh, I, I want to honor him in his uh, in uh, in this interview uh, as as well. We have uh, we have worked very very hard to make, uh, in particularly this book, um, accessible to uh, proverbial uh, kind of educated uh, educated uh, generally educated uh, reader. Um, I, I think we have to see whether we have succeeded uh, in this, and we tried to kind of open up the space uh, for invite uh, with the book, invite uh, the discussion rather than close uh, the discussion. Some places we mm-hmm. come fairly strongly, um, but other places. I think on torture, you say it's the only one I remember. You say no room for debate. That was the uh, uh, yeah. The some some of these things, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. and again, of course, it's debatable which one uh, should one come uh, come down uh, in this way. I, I think it's uh, I, I think it's a responsible uh, to do to do so while being obviously open to be challenged. On mm-hmm. uh, invitation to uh, to folks to read initial chapters is about twenty minutes reading one 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 of those chapters. Uh, and if they want to read more, uh, resources are made, made available. And above all, I think to take seriously the issue 
uh, grapple with the, with the issue. I think to me and to Ryan uh, as well, much more important outcome would be not agreement with where, where we where we stand, but uh, serious debate about it. And this is what I'm sometimes despairing in the current climate yeah. is that mm. kind of debate about different sides of things, suppleness into thinking that uh, into into working yourself in positions where you may be with one side on one issue but on uh, uh, with the other side on the other issue and yet on third issue you might stay somewhere somewhere in in, in the middle uh, and the yet some third uh, party that doesn't exist might uh, might advocate for that that position and I believe that some such attitude uh, is absolutely required for the followers of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And if that's the case, then we go where our basic convictions about Jesus Christ uh, lead us. Politics is not everything, shouldn't be everything, and politics is not our Lord, and the, and the means which we use, uh, uh, or goals that we, uh, some goals that we have uh, don't justify uh, very problematic means uh, and swallowing also other unacceptable uh, unacceptable ends. I think um, I think I am uh, um, for just a little bit more purity, if you want, <laughs> in following <laughs> than what we see right now. A little bit less belonging to the camp. Uh, because yeah. uh, right now the two camps have become unporous to one another. Conversations between them hardly ever happen. We don't know how they might happen, and any type of conversation and entertaining the possibility of alternative position is seen as a betrayal of the cause, mm. uh, which is to mm -hmm. say we are at the situation of war, which is some, what some people want us to believe. Mentality is that kind. I think we Christians have to resist that mentality as much as we resist any given position that it's taken. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, in your um, the book we've mentioned about uh, a public faith, you you talk about Christians as having the capacity to share wisdom and to be politically engaged, and uh, the kind of internal resources brought to bear in our uh, wider. Uh, context, and that's exactly what you have uh, yourself uh, done in, in your work. And so we're thankful for for being able to reflect more on on um, on the wisdom that you're bringing to to bear on the on the the nature of Christian political engagement, and and for the modeling of of how that's to be done respectfully and in a way that partners with with um, with one another for the sake of for, for the sake of everyone. So thanks for being with us, and thanks for. Uh, for your for your time and your attention to these uh, questions. Thank you for reading uh, my book so so carefully and for conducting this interview. It was always a pleasure.